Welcome to Notice That, an EMDR podcast. Here, you will find discussion on all things EMDR from MDR-approved trainers and consultants, as well as some co-hosts. EMDR is an approach to the entire therapeutic journey, not just reprocessing trauma. This podcast will feature discussion on the therapeutic relationship, understanding and using the original eight-phase protocol, and what to do to bring deeper understanding to the why behind EMDR and what to do when you're stuck. This podcast is an invitation to connect and learn together about EMDR and the process of psychotherapy. We are glad that you're here. Notice That is a project of Think Beyond, a listener-funded media house focused on connecting humans through therapy and art. To keep this podcast going, we'd love for you to support us on Patreon by searching patreon.com slash thinkbeyondhealing in your favorite web browser. And don't forget to check out our new merch by going to our website at connectbeyondhealing.com and clicking on the merchandise tab. Hey everyone, this is Bridger from the Notice That podcast team. I am doing the intro today uh, to share with you a wonderful interview that I got to do with Rotem Brayer, uh, who's a friend of the podcast and a community developer inside uh, the, the world of EMDR. And he recently uh, wrote a book and that's coming out here in the next month. Um, called The Art and Science of EMDR. The subtitle is Helping Clinicians Bridge the Path from Protocol to Practice. And I just wanted to read uh, a little inscription uh, from the back of the book um, just to kind of set up the context for the interview as we're in the midst of our Back to Basics season. For us, this is a great capturing, this interview is a great capturing of the posture that we hope all uh, students of EMDR, whether you're just starting out, you know, even before you're basic trained, all the way through uh, the later developmental stages of becoming an EMDR clinician, including certification, becoming a consultant, and even becoming a trainer. But this, uh, just in brief inscription, I think really sums it up. It says, the therapists who are trained in EMDR can facilitate healing in the most profound ways. But successful treatment requires more than following a rigid script or a protocol. It requires bringing both the art and science of EMDR into the therapy room. I feel that that inscription uh, really resonates with the aesthetic of this podcast and uh, just kind of all things at beyond. And so as you listen to this episode, um, I just wanted you to have that in mind, the art and science of EMDR. Uh, is where we start to bring about the most profound healing we can with our clients. And uh, as you're listening to this episode, I also wanted you to keep in mind that professional development is something that we really highly value here at Beyond. And we have another round of our somatic integration and processing level one training uh, beginning May 4th through the 6th from 8 a.m. to 5.30 p.m. Central Time. And that's available both in the live seated portion here in Springfield, we'll be at home for this one, or on Zoom uh, from wherever you are in the world. So again, that's May 4th through the 6th, 8 a.m. to 5.30 p.m. So if you have a chance, head over to our website at connectbeyondhealing.com and look at the um, 
course calendar under the four therapist tab and there'll be the registration information under the enroll now tab. So we'd really love to see you there. In that training, we talk about the how and why of bringing together the art and science of EMDR therapy. So I just wanted to mention that as you're listening to this episode. If you're listening to this after those dates, uh, the website is also going to be a place where you'll see any current or future dates posted. So even if you're listening to this after those May 4th through the 6th dates, you can find uh, all of your registration information for any future SIP trainings on the website as well. Anyway, all the blabbering aside, uh, I hope you enjoy this episode with Ro Tim, a dear friend of mine and of, of beyond as well. Enjoy. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Notice That, an EMDR podcast. I have a very special interview today uh, with a good friend of Beyond, good friend of mine, good friend of the podcast, Rotem Breyer, uh, to talk about his new book coming out here this year. Um, I would love, Rotem, if you could just introduce yourself to the listeners. They've heard your name before because we've talked about you on the podcast before. Uh, so you're you're you have a bit of a reputation you're adding to. So please uh, introduce yourself to the listeners, and then we'll we'll get into the book a little bit. Yeah, thanks for having me, Bridger. Um, I am a therapist, EMDR therapist, consultant. Um, and now the author of the book, The Art and Science of EMDR, which we're going to talk about today. I think that like you, Bridger, I spent a lot of time not only learning EMDR, but really thinking about EMDR. Um, and um, that's why it's it's great. It's always great to spend time with you because we can, we can spend a lot of time talking about EMDR with one of our community members said, EMDR nerds. EMDR uh, nerds. So yeah, yeah, you can call me an EMDR nerd. I'm not going to be offended. Uh, I'll, I'll take wear that, that compliment. Actually. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you can call me an EMDR nerd. I'm I'm really really interested in in this modality because it really changed everything for me. I I had been a therapist for about ten years before I was trained in EMDR, and once I trained in EMDR. It changed everything from conceptualizing, you know, my clients' issues to treatment to really everything. So, um, you know, I, I spent all this time researching and reading and highlighting and all that. So I realized, why not write a book to share my um, knowledge and insights with other EMDR therapists? Yeah, I love that you brought up other EMDR therapists in that as well, because you're you're also a community developer inside the world of EMDR clinicians. And um, I hear that as I've gotten to read your work, that you're constantly thinking about, it seems in the book at least, the way the reader as an EMDR clinician is experiencing your writing and thinking through how it could apply to their work. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, thank you for asking that. I think it's important before we get into the content of the book to talk about how the book was written. So I think that a lot of EMDR therapists have the experience of ordering EMDR books uh, more than we can read. 
And then what happens, a lot of these books are so dense and so hard to read that people get excited. They get it. They read 20 pages and then it gets dense and then they put it aside and they go back to it. Uh, so I intentionally wrote a different book. Uh, this is a book that is very easy to read. You can read it over a weekend. I hope that people will go back to it as kind of like a reference. But um, I, I really made sure, and that was my plan from the beginning, to write a book for EMDR clinicians that does not feel like a PhD dissertation, that does not feel very formal. Um, it, it's more kind of like a, a book that is fun to read, I hope. Yeah. yeah, that was definitely the feel that I got from it, that each of the chapters are only, you know, maybe 20 pages or so long. And that to me just says something about how accessible it can be to the reader, um, that it's not going to, you know, overwhelm you with, here's all this historical context and all this deep brain science and all this really nitty gritty application that can get kind of abstract, but you're like the way it came through was very relational and it, it kind of felt like it was starting a conversation that worry, we all know is going on and you kind of just address the elephant in the room like hey this is kind of what we're doing as EMDR therapists right like and right. we kind of had the conversation then right 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 and we had conversations about it before Bridger that um you know what you guys do on a podcast is really help con contextualize so give context to what we do which I think is so important and this is why you know I love your podcast and I I think you have so many listeners because we need that. We need to know, to really develop this deeper understanding of why we do what we do uh, and to understand what works in EMDR. Mm -hmm. I think that once therapists have this foundational understanding, uh, they, the, the whole work of healing the client is so much deeper and you don't have to start memorizing certain protocols or certain interventions, uh, you really understand what you're doing. You just do it. Right. It's just embodied intuition that comes through in the work you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. Um, so this is one thing that, you know, there's an element of your story that I think a lot of clinicians will resonate with that they were captivated captivated by the therapeutic power of EMDR. And they said, this is going to be my life as a therapist. I'm just going to do this. I think that's one thing, but then it's another to like, say, okay, I'm going to write a book about it. Can you right. talk about that process of saying, you mentioned it earlier that, oh, I just maybe why not write a book about what I know and have experienced and talk to other clinicians with, but what was it actually like to try and funnel all of that into your book? Oh, that's such a great question, Bridger. I, you know, it's not an easy process. It's really like, I remember when I was looking for a coach, so I hired a, a book coach. Um, I described it as I've been pregnant for two years with this book and it's painful because I have all this thing in my head all these, all these ideas, all these things that I want to connect together. And, um, you know, sometimes you wake up at night and all these ideas are just, are just, they, you, your brain continues to work until you're actually birthing this, this 
book. Um, so it was a it was a hard process, but it, it's very, very, very fulfilling. So to have this experience of really birthing this book, so to to bring this book to the world that I know that EMDR clinicians will read it and will have a you know a better understanding of what they do, and they will be able to do better EMDR with their clients. Uh, I'm yeah. just thinking about the impact. And that that was that's what was on my mind the whole time when I had to wake up very, very, very early in the morning to write this book. So, you know, I'm a clinician in private practice. I'm a father, father of two. I have a wife. I have life. I'm doing consultations. So I had to find the time to do it when my head is clear. And that was very early in the morning, every morning for a little over a year yeah. uh, to wake up and do this work before checking emails, before going the into noise of text the, the noise. Exactly. When my head is clear, wake up, I'm doing my meditation, my morning meditation. And then I start to write. I even have a separate laptop. So without mm. the noise. So what I did, I, I, this gets I into your deep focus that you talk right, about in the book too. Right. Yeah. Right. I talk about, you know, one of the, um, books that influenced me in terms of the work what is called deep work. Uh, and I, I talk, uh, I talked about with our mutual friend, Jackie Flynn, and she's also, she's writing her book now. And, uh, she also, took these elements of deep work before your head is, you know, overwhelmed with all these messages, which we all, this is reality now, right? Like yeah, we yeah. get messages from our, our parents, our friends, our clients, or, you know, people who know us and it, it's just overwhelming the brain. So before all that, I, you know, dedicated time to deep work, um, no Wi-Fi on my other laptop to just for just writing. be able to focus on this work. Um, and again, I, I kept it in mind the whole time that it's hard work, but it's going to be worth it. Yeah, that's beautiful. And you're only, you know, weeks away now from it actually going on the shelf. How does it feel? It feels great. It's, um, the baby was know. born and it's coming home. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it's so exciting. I I don't know. It's it's just so exciting that uh people are already expressing interest in um I just know that it's part of my mission to help, you know, heal more people. And you know, I can only help certain amount of clients that mm. I see in person and consultees that I see, you know, as part of my consultations, but this book will help other EMDR clinicians um, just to do better, better EMDR work and therapy in general. Yeah. This will help us kind of get into the, to the content of the book a little bit. Um, you know, at this stage of EMDR practice and publication, there are quite a bit of writing available to people about EMDR. 
And I'd love to kind of hear, like I said, this will kind of get us into the content of the book, but what was it like for you to think this is the book that I'm going to write about EMDR, the art and science of EMDR, like even the title, if you could kind of get into that a little bit, I think that'll take us into the, to the chapters. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, So there is a lot of writing about the science of EMDR. I think as a community, um, the bigger EMDR community, we focus a lot on science. Uh, And I think it's important to focus on science. Uh, And I'm starting in the book, you know, first two chapters talking about the brain. What's happening in the brain? Give context of what's happening in the brain, how healing happens in the brain. Uh, So science is important, but EMDR at its best doesn't work without the art. Now, you can't have the art without the science. So I think it's just this beautiful integration of understanding the science and then you can become this, you know, you can implement the art into the science. Hmm. Do you feel like that's the order or does the order really matter to you of like science before art or does it kind of all come together in your mind? Uh, I think it all comes together. I think that it needs to, so people need to understand the science. uh, And I think that people should not be afraid of the science. So I think that what happens on a lot of EMDR board, uh, um, you know, publications, I know you've you've worked with uh, Yuri Bergman, for example. Mm -hmm. And when, you know, I read his book, it was overwhelming to me, like a lot of, um, detailed information and what I'm doing in my book um, again and and I think Yuri Bergman's work is important and I I am I'm grateful for him for having all this information but what I did is took this information instead of focusing on um, you know brain specific brain structures I explained the concepts. So yes, I, I mentioned the amygdala or actually mm-hmm. the amygdala because we have two, two in yes. the book. Uh, but and the default I'm mode not... network, you get into a lot of really important um, neural architectural areas that are you know, obviously activated in the EMDR process. But I love how you kept it high level. I'm like, don't get lost in the weeds. Almost like that was the the sentiment that I picked up in the book that we're talking about. And this is something we we go into so often is we're, we really, as therapists, care about neuroscience for the functional understanding, not necessarily the structural understanding or the interstructural understanding. Exactly. And that's why I tell my consultees when they start to get overwhelmed and how to explain EMDR, you're not going to be a better EMDR therapist if you know all the brain structures that you know newer scientists know. It's not going to help you do better EMDR. Yeah. It will help you do better EMDR if you understand the concepts, how healing happens, how, you know, what we're doing when we're asking our clients to focus on an image and negative cognition and emotion and body sensation, what is actually happening in the brain and what is happening, you know, when we expose them to bilateral stimulation mm-hmm. and how all that works, I think that will help you be a better EMDR therapist, but not knowing, you know, certain brain structures that 
you know, 99% of therapists don't know that's. And not if 99% of therapists don't know it, imagine the clients, you know, that this is just going to overwhelm and like other in how we describe it. I love that. And you, there's something, there's some key themes throughout the book that I noticed. Um, One of them was the limits of language. I loved this um, sentiment and it's something that I talk about so frequently and that shows up in your first chapter. Can you talk about the limits of language as you see it in EMDR? Yeah, absolutely. I think that we all got, um, tend to get lost in language. We're such um, language-based creatures, right? Articulate We're thinking creatures. in language, yeah. um, but we have to we have to remember and we have to remind ourselves that a lot of what we do in EMDR work, the deep healing, uh, especially when it comes to attachment wounds, is operating on a nonverbal uh, sphere. And um, we have to understand uh, the difference between explicit memories and implicit memories that I'm also covering in the book. Um, and once we remember that, it enriches our work because we're not stuck in just a story, um, but we're working on a, a deeper level of pre-verbal, non-verbal, implicit memories. Yeah. I think a book like this is very timely because just that conceptual and functional understanding of neuroanatomy and process, that is where we can now launch a new generation of EMDR therapists to embody and embrace the science, but apply it in a really functional art of connection in the therapeutic space. Absolutely. I love that. So then you get into, speaking of uh, the relationship, you get into right up front, the therapeutic relationship can you talk about that, like why it came so early in the book and, and what value you see in it? Yeah, I think that, um, again, as an EMDR community, we're not talking enough about the therapeutic relationship. Um, we tend to focus on the protocol or protocols, which, by the way, I think we have way, way, way too many protocols. Oversaturated. Um, yeah, <laughs> oversaturated. Nobody can follow. Nobody can you know, keep track of all the protocols out there. And what I tell my consultees all the time, and I, you know, I, I emphasize that in the book too, is that knowing the standard protocol, deeply understanding why we do what we do is better than knowing, you know, a hundred protocols in a very shallow surface level. Um, so back to the therapeutic relationship, a lot of the healing happens as a result of the therapeutic relationship. And I think we have kind of like a mismatch because of the way a lot of EMDR therapists were trained initially many years ago, and maybe some of them still are. Uh, I know there are some trainers and I, I know, you know, beyond healing um, emphasizes the therapeutic relationship. And, mm-hmm. um, but I know that there are some training institutes out there that don't, that, you know, therapeutic relationship is not being mentioned as, you know, a factor in healing. Um, and there, and it's not something that is being talked about in advanced training. Again, we're, we're focusing on 
you know, techniques and protocols and strategies and interventions, and this is all good, but we have to always, always, always remember the therapeutic relationship because that's the foundation. That's that's where healing happens. Without that, um, unless you have a client who had a car accident two weeks ago, and up until that point, their life was absolutely perfect, which nobody has that. It's not I, real. I have yet to <laughs> met that person. But um, in theory, if you had a, a, a client who had perfect life, and then they had a car accident two weeks ago and came to see you, you don't, re- you don't really need the, the therapeutic relationship. But for most clients, you need it. And this is something that, again, I see a lot of EMDR therapists not paying attention to enough. Yeah, this is a really pressurized tension that faces much of our field where we're oversaturated with left brain protocols and scripts. And much of our training undervalues, if it even mentions, the relational conduit by which change is to be experienced in the room. What a conundrum for new and seasoned EMDR clinicians, almost distancing them so far away from what will actually create the change that we want to see in our in our clients and in our patients. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I'm reminded because we're in the midst of this back to basics season, um, Francine in her in her seminal text opens that first chapter describing what the you know the scene of an EMDR clinician observes in the clients they see and different things like that. And and she mentions right away that you will need more training after this standard protocol. Like you will need to specialize in different things and go on to understand and explain developmental deficits and all of this stuff. But I think the field, just based on what you said, took that in a direction that maybe wasn't ever really intended, like took it in a direction to say, okay, let's protocolize every single minute presentation instead of saying, how do we fit the standard protocol into the client as opposed to the client into the standard protocol? Absolutely. And that, you know, um, I learned a lot from my friend and mentor, Jamie Marich, which I know she was on your podcast recently. Yeah, she wrote the foreword for your text, right? Right. She was yeah. she wrote the foreword. And in her book, she wrote three MDR books. She wrote a bunch of books and out of them, three MDR books. So the book she wrote about um addictions, um, she specifically says that the standard protocol can be applied to most most issues that clients come to our offices with. Uh, Of course, you have to adapt it according to the client and take the relationship into consideration and take where they are in the um, window of tolerance. So you have to, to understand what you're doing, but the standard protocol can really work for the majority of um our clients. Yeah, absolutely. I love that mental image of fitting the protocol into the client, like seeing how it can help them where they are in their most specific individual presentations instead of forcing them into a specific protocol or something like that the other way around. It right. just feels so inhuman <laughs> yeah. to me. Yeah. So 
Is there anything else just on that first therapeutic relationship section? The next one is getting into some of the beginning phases. Um, So this all feels kind of like in the book, a little bit of preparation to the context and culture of the EMDR therapist before they even get to necessarily the phases. Yeah. Yeah. I I like what you said earlier, Bridger, that it's kind of like we have a a new generation now of EMDR therapists who are more aware. I hope I want to, I want to believe that, you know, listening to your podcast, you know, people from all over the world are listening to your podcast. And I know how much you guys, uh, you and Jen and Melissa uh, value the therapeutic relationship. And it's even in your intro, I think that you guys are talking about, you know, EMDR is an approach for, you know, therapy in general, it's not just a technique or a protocol. And I think that we have more and more EMDR therapists who are becoming aware of that, um, but maybe not enough. And again, that's why I'm emphasizing pretty early in the book, the importance of the therapeutic relationship. So I really kind of like, I'm, I'm taking a step back now from content to process, right? So Love that. how I structured the book um, we're starting with the brain and I'm building layers upon layers of understanding what happens in the brain. Um, and then the next thing is therapeutic relationships. So I want the reader to remember that and to keep that in mind before we're getting into the phases that this is the foundation. This is how uh, healing occurs. And it, you have to keep that in mind. Yeah, I love that. And I appreciate the call back to the process orientation towards the conversation, because I think that's again, where you highlight this several times in the book where you're like, you know, we as a therapy community have been trained in a sense to compulsively consume the next protocol, the next book, the next, whatever, almost like a snake chasing its tail Um, or a snake eating its own tail, like the linear process of get, just get to the thing, just get to the next thing, just get to that. Let's slow down and really almost just like hold hands and be here together for a little bit, as opposed to rush into the next thing. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Um, There was another point. I'm sure it'll come back uh, to me. Um, I also really appreciated the, concepts of mindfulness and breath work in the book. Can you talk about that a little bit from a process kind of standpoint? Like we don't have to get necessarily into what's covered in the book, but just a little bit of why those things came to you as something you wanted to put in the art and science of EMDR. Yeah. Thank you for asking that because I, you know, I've been, um, I've been practicing mindfulness, um, for over 20 years before it became such a buzzword, um, before it was cool. <laughs> yeah, before I, I think it began, it was like in the beginning of being cool. But I remember someone specifically asking me kind of like, what, like, um, just people thought it was weird that I was practicing um, meditation 20 years ago. And I think that a lot of what we do in EMDR and practicing of mindfulness are very similar processes. So I'm talking about becoming the observer. Mm. And this is something we do both in practice of mindfulness, right? We sit 
and then we kind of notice our thoughts and we learn to relate to these thoughts without judgment and without assigning too much meaning. We just learn to observe. And this is exactly what we do in EMDR. And I'm telling all my clients that they have to meditate. Of course, I'm, I'm saying in, in a, in a in nicer way, way, but I'm, I'm strongly, <laughs> strongly encouraging them to meditate because I think it helps the, the work that we do in EMDR to sit and observe your thoughts. And especially, um, it's not just thoughts, it's thoughts and emotions and body sensations well, or really whatever else it. is coming up. Um, to sit and observe traumatic memories is very, very hard. And if you're not doing this supplemental work hmm. um, of mindfulness, it's it's going to be hard. Um, now, the goal of chapter five, that, that's the chapter about mindfulness, is not only to understand, but for the therapist to practice mindfulness. And mm -hmm. I'm saying specifically in the book, you have time to take professional trainings because I know that you're taking a lot of trainings and you're reading a lot of books. Um, but somehow when it comes to doing your own mindfulness practice, you don't have time. And right. I really want to encourage you to make time. Time will not become available unless you make it available. And I, my claim in this book, and again, that's coming from Jamie Marich's another book that she wrote about EMDR and mindfulness, is that if you're practicing mindfulness, you're going to do better EMDR work because you're able to take the client with you to the observer seat to model that, first of all. Second of all, what do you do when your client abreacts? What do you do when your client dissociates? What do you do when your client is experiencing really hard material? You want to be in that mindful state because to observe. this is where I'm talking about um, Alan Shore mm -hmm. and becoming the psychobiological regulator. Your client is borrowing your nervous system. And if you are not regulated, then what's going to happen? And how are you going to help your client? Yeah, I love the way you're talking about mindfulness and meditation, not as this passive thoughtlessness, which I think is an unfortunate connotation of like, just clear your mind and think of nothing or something like that, but a really engaged or purposeful uh, state of mindfulness that is engaged in the mental content with, with, again, with purpose and to accompany or parallel the MDR process with a regular meditation or mindfulness practice can be so facilitative of the generalization of the work that we're doing in the session out into the world. And that's one of the frequent pieces of feedback that my consultees will give me is that it's hard to see how directly to transition from an EMDR reprocessing session, which is often what clinicians mean when they say an EMDR session. It's like we're getting into reprocessing, or if we don't, we're not doing EMDR anymore. Right, right, right. Uh, so it's hard to transition from that to a session or a processing session where you're actually applying some of that out into the real world. It just feels like I have to do one or the other sometimes. And so what I love about what you're saying is that that to me is a really organic bridge 
between the content discussed in the EMDR session out into the real world with a very tangible connection to the felt experience and change that the client experienced in the, in the relationship with the therapist. Right. So I, I bring really interesting research into this um, chapter about mindfulness. And, you know, you talked about clearing your mind and yes, some people can do that, but they have tens of thousands of hours of practicing meditation uh, as a, and, and they probably don't have Twitter and, you know, Instagram and all these things that, you know, keep triggering their, their, our, their brains yeah. with, mm -hmm. you know, unnecessary information. So we have to be realistic with our um, mindfulness outcomes or with, with our mindfulness practice outcomes. And that's something, another thing that I'm talking about in the book, because we we want you know we're living in society of immediate rewards we want something very immediate so when people meditate for you know 10 minutes a day for three times a week you're not going to see outcomes very quickly you have to do it over a period of time and this is where i i bring the that other layer of the brain that i started talking about in chapter 1 that the brain rewires itself but it takes time. This rewiring can't happen if you're meditating with an app for you know a few minutes a week. It has to be consistent. It has to be long-term in order to see these changes. And these changes can be clearly seen in brain scanners now, which is very exciting. Very, very exciting. Absolutely. Um, one of the pieces that just came to mind is this um mechanism in your book of the done better um emdr done better preparation done better resourcing done better can you talk about that kind of mechanism of what done better really means to you yeah um done better to me means a you're understanding what you're doing b you're attentive to your client 100 i don't care what you learned in the basic EMDR training, that container needs to be a box. If, you know, I'm bringing an example of, you know, if it's not a box, it can be uh, something else. It can be, you know, one of my clients had a, his container was a black hole. Yes. Uh, and I'm, I'm bringing this example and I'm bringing other examples. You have to individualize the resource to your client and you have to understand, again, why you're doing why you're doing resourcing and then it doesn't matter if you call it container or box or a black hole whatever works to regulate your client's nervous system that's what matters uh and this is done better individualize whatever you do no matter what phase you're in individualize the treatment to your client mm -hmm. i love that um, to me, I'm so glad we got to get that on the recording because as I was reading through the book, that done better phrase kind of comes up and it so often revolves around or shows up right next to something about the relationship between the client and the therapist and something about the individualization of the process to that client. So I really exactly. wanted to kind of highlight that. Exactly. And, and, and again, that comes as a response to some training institutes. They are tra tra training people to do the exact same thing with 
every client. And I think I think that fits right into you know what you're doing in the in the season of notice that is that you're you know I, I started listening to the first episode and you're talking about the history, right? Like how EMDR was created. Yeah, there was a walk in the park, but there was a lot more than a walk in the park. A full context, a scene that it entered into. Yeah. Right. And we have to understand that Francine Shapiro fought to make it an evidence-based modality. That's why she was so protective. That's why she needed so precise. The, mm-hmm. the VOC and the SUD. We need these numbers and we need to, in order to publish research, we need it to be consistent. But when it comes to your client, it doesn't matter to your client that there's like a one to seven scale. I mean, healing doesn't stop at the number seven. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) Right? I'm saying in the book, if there's more adaptive material coming when the client reports seven, why why would you stop there? Because someone created a protocol that- Arbitrarily. Mm-hmm. Arbit- very arbitrarily, the number seven doesn't really represent the, you know, and all be all of healing. It's yes. just a, an arbitrary number that was created and it's good that it was created, but it should not limit what we do with our clients. So this is something that I talked to some of my research students about, um, and to me, it's a, it's a statistical fallacy or a result of a statistical fallacy that when we prop up the evidence-based support for a modality with these assessment protocols and procedures and outcomes, it's so difficult for the user of that protocol to not treat every element of the modality with that same pressure and expectation. Right. It's so fascinating to me about EMDR that the assessment phase is really where that evidence-based skeptic is pointed, but we carry over the fear of that skeptic to every phase of right. EMDR. Right. And this is a good point. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the assessment phase. And again, we have scales, right? We have the SUD zero to 10 and we have the VOC. And what do you do when you work with a refugee client? And I'm bringing this example in the book, uh, grew up in a country in Africa, um, I changed the details, of course, in a book. Uh, but she grew up in a country where she didn't she never went to school. Um, so zero to ten, that's a that's a concept, that's a Western concept, right? Like my eight-year-old is rating um his food. Like if he doesn't didn't like dinner, it's a one star. Um this is a <laughs> Western concept that yes. we perceive as this is reality. This is, we have to do it with every client. But if this client doesn't have the context of zero to 10, and why would I even spend time trying to explain it to her? Yes. There's one way of hearing what you just said as, okay, so when I'm working with African refugees, I need to be more open-minded about the rating. But I think what it actually highlights is that this number line has its limits with its human application. Right. That to me is where I don't want it to be categorized as, oh, okay, so with what Rotem said, if I'm working with an African refugee, I don't need to worry about this arbitrary scale because it's not a Eastern construct to them or, or a collectivist construct. No, to me, it's it's highlighting that, yes, use the assessment in favor of the human understanding. Don't limit the human understanding to the assessment construct. 
Perfect. Perfect. Um, because again, it's not just with the African refugee, right? No. <laughs> I have, you know, I have, I have clients that just, they don't like when I ask them this question, zero to 10, it, it annoys them. Yeah. Um, we, we, we can find other ways to assess, um, you know, the level of disturbance and it doesn't have to be in a zero to 10 scale unless you're doing research. That's right. And then it needs to be very concise, um, again, to really focus the efficacy studies. The piece that I transition into then within EMDR with the statistical fallacy is that the worry that you're carrying from the assessment phase into these other phases limits the application and creativity of any of the other phases, especially resourcing. Like you were saying, the content of the container exercise being a box, that is not quote unquote, the evidence-based nature of EMDR. Like it doesn't hang on what visual image represents the container exercise, but the fear that rises up in us because of the EMDR's evidence-based treatment, and we have to do it by the script or else it's not evidence-based anymore. And we're not practicing with fidelity. I think that just strangles or squelches any of our creative openness to the spontaneity of the client, which is actually what is going to help them heal if we're open to that and can incorporate that into their therapeutic process. Exactly. And and again, bring an, an example in a book of a client I had who um, left her previous EMDR therapist because she insisted to put your feelings in a box. So uh, what I said in, in the book is that this therapist could not think outside the box and that's why she lost her client. Uh, so you need to be able to, again, understand the concept, but think outside the box with your client. I love that. Um, think outside the box with your client. Um, that to me kind of transitions into this uh, chapter seven. So you're kind of turning the corner here into some some really concrete application um, but where the magic of EMDR happens, can you describe that a little bit or like where that came from? Yeah. Um, so the magic of EMDR, I think I, um, the term came from Mark Brain from the UK. Uh, mm. he, he wrote, um, he teaches these workshops and um, he calls it release the magic of EMDR. Um, because it, it does, you know, and he talks about it in the book that it's not really magic because some people have, you know, negative association with the word magic. We're not doing right. magic, but it sometimes feels like that, right? Like magical you sit with yeah. a client, you sit with a client and you ask them, you know, to focus on a very disturbing memory. And then 30, 40 minutes later, the memory is not disturbing. And that feels like magic. Yeah, uh, it does. Right. And that, does happen in phase four. Um, but what I, I want to emphasize, Bridger, from that chapter is we all know that the magic happens in phase four uh, or, or at least starts there. Yeah. Uh, but I think that what we do, again, a lot of therapists make that mistake of making phases five and six very, very short. Yeah. And I think there's so much opportunity. That's to a big do. problem. Yeah. So much healing, so yeah. much work there to continue. 
first of all, I'm talking about, you know, phase five, just an example. We're installing, which I know a lot of people have a problem with that word, but let's say we're installing, we're in the installation phase and we're installing a positive cognition, okay? So we're focusing on cognition, but what happens if you're focusing on, I am lovable, right? That's a cognition. Is there a body sensation associated with that? Is there an emotion associated with that? Why are we limiting ourselves to this cognition? To yeah. Only a part of these neural network that we're trying to strengthen. Mm-hmm. Right? So the body scan phase six, um, I think we're also doing very, very, very brief work, uh, or at least many, many um EMDR therapists, because that's how we're being trained in mm-hmm. the basic training. You sit and, you know, you have your client or whoever's in front of you in the training, scan their body. A lot of times they report nothing. Let's move on. And we're missing a lot there. I think that, you know, and I know, Bridger, you're spending a lot of time studying what's happening and teaching what's happening in the body, right? Uh, There's a lot that we're missing there. And there's a lot of opportunity to even focus on the positive. Again, I see it as a continued, um, kind of a natural continuation of phase five. Uh, I love when, that. When you, get, when you get to phase six, um, to focus on these positive things. So I'm talking about uh, posture, for example. Mm-hmm. You know, if there's a new posture that is associated with your new positive cognition why not install that mm-hmm. install that yeah yeah i love right? the air quotes yeah <laughs> right i'm also talking about natural flow between phases so and this is a concept that i go back to over and over in the book is that we're we're being taught that there are eight phases we're being taught in a very linear way but the healing process itself the work that we do with emdr um, is not linear at all. It, it never is. Yeah. And if we limit our thought process to be linear, we're, t- we're, we tend to do more linear work and we're missing some things. Uh, so for example, a lot of times I see clients naturally transition into phase four, five, when we are doing phase four, um, and, and that's just a natural process. So I don't need to stop them and say, hey, don't, don't tell me about your positive cognition now or positive Anymore. whatever's We're coming up. <laughs> I, I, I want to hear it only when you get to zero. I let them go with that. And that's part of the process. So um, yes, we have eight phases. And yes, they're very helpful to help us contextualize the work that we do. Um, but I think that if we think about the whole model more holistically, uh, we're more likely to do better work with our clients. Absolutely. And I, I want to kind of just circle back to phase five and six there because it it so highlights the top-down you know, persuasion that so many of us have in the West where the cognition is what matters. That's the prize. 
And that is so far from what actually matters to the body and what will originally create the state of mind that the cognition hangs out in. One of the kind of indicators, because I get that kind of weird face of when we talk about the positive cognition and we're actually pairing that now with the sensation that's in the body, a kind of like a tilt of the head or, you know, some way the client will respond And one of the ways I've just kind of the quick phrases that I've learned to use is why does the positive cognition matter? Like, why does it matter to you? Why does I am lovable matter in this moment? Well, because if that were true, then X, Y, and Z. Okay. What feeling does that bring up? And then that's where we're just like deepening it. And this is where I see like an immense amount of tears start coming from just a phrase like I am lovable that prior to when we were still in phase three and four was zero. (laughs) Like, I don't believe it at all. And it makes me angry and resentful and grief filled to talk about that I'm not. And now, like you said, 30 or 40 minutes later, we're crying because of how good I am lovable feels in our body, because we understand why it matters. Right, right. But that only happens when we're not limiting ourselves to only cognition, right? Because like, what's what's the cognition of I'm lovable? How can you just focus only on cognition with I'm lovable? It doesn't mean anything. Like, I don't know. (laughs) It really doesn't mean anything. Uh, Once you get into the emotion and and the body and the feeling of I am lovable and what it means relationally, that's where I think, again, you start to light up so much of the body. Hmm. So let's kind of land the plane here on deliberate practice. This is kind of how you, which to me, I don't know if this will surprise you, but was my favorite chapter of the book. Um, I really liked it because it felt triumphant and it felt exalting to the therapy community of EMDR that we need to take this farther. This can't end just at the close of this book. Um, so based on your head shakes, I think that's what you intended. So I'd love yes, to hear you yes. talk about that. So the, the whole book leads to that. That's what I'm most excited about for people to read and take from this book. And this is not limited to, you know, newly training MDR therapists because I want consultants to read it and I want trainers to read it because, and I, I kind of left it open-ended. I have been reading a lot about deliberate practice, which I'm going to explain in a second what it is. Um, and I I want people, I didn't trademark it. I didn't say deliberate practice, EMDR, trademark. I want people to take that concept and to really improve the way we learn EMDR, the way we train in EMDR, the way we provide consultations. So let me take a step back and explain what deliberate practice is. Deliberate practice is a method uh, for people who become experts in different fields to become experts. What do they do? So people in different fields who become experts, uh, they're doing very different things, but they're following a very similar process of learning and practicing. Uh, And this is something we don't do enough in the EMDR world when it comes to um, trainings and consultations. Because if if I go to an EMDR training and all I do is watch a PowerPoint presentation, um, my learning will be limited. But if I practice what I learned 
and I get feedback. And this is important. This is an important point. Get feedback. Practicing alone has its limitations. Practice with feedback. And again, that's coming from a lot of research on deliberate practice and what experts do. Um, there's a lot of research in, in sports and uh, with musicians. Mm -hmm. They practice very, very specific skills and they get feedback on it. And once they get feedback, they fine tune the littlest thing, the smallest things, and then they get more feedback. And once they get to a point that they really feel comfortable with what they're doing uh, after getting all this feedback, then they move on to the next. And I think that one of the mistakes that we do, again, a lot of EMDR therapists make, is that they finish basic training and they're so excited. So they sign up for like, you know, nine trainings the next year and but what did they do with what they learned a standard so i want like you yeah. said earlier we need to take a step back and slow down and really focus on what we're learning and practice and get feedback on our practice and i still do that with you know different consultants i i will forever continue to learn and you know, implement this deliberate practice. Um, and I think that that's just makes my, my EMDR practice better. And I wanted to share that with other people. So, you know, consultations hopefully will be done in a way that is more productive. So people do their consultation, then really feel comfortable because what would happen if you went to a training and, you know, your training was um, Friday and Saturday. And then on Monday, you start your client and you start trying new yeah, things. Yeah, tinkering around with the stuff right. from the training. And you don't, but you don't, you don't, you're not sure what you're doing. What if you did this practice with a colleague, you know, in the training and get feedback on it and then try it again and get more feedback on it. And then went to your client with after you got that feedback, they'll look very, very different. Yeah, I think, and you talk about this in your book, um, in this chapter, that even the trainings that do have the implementation element or the, you know, the activity or the breakout sessions or whatever, so often the understanding of that time in its purpose and what it's meant to do is not there. I'm thinking of a advanced training that I was uh, a part of for my certification where in the application, so many people started getting triggered because of what was happening. And the consultant who was leading the training, just like shut it down and kind of just like went back to slides, like didn't talk about like any of that, or there was no group process. And I was just thinking like, that's a, I mean, I don't know how we're supposed to now walk away with any application of this besides that was really triggering. I don't really know yeah. what else to do with it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, it, it's, it's a good example, Bridger. And, you know, in the book, I'm talking about the training that I went to that, you know, the morning was all, you know, slides and the afternoon was practice. And I was very excited about practice, but the trainer was just sitting somewhere and not providing any feedback not not once um so the when when we're trying something new we don't know we just learned it so if we don't get feedback on it 
how would we know if what we're doing, like if we're in the right direction, if we're in the wrong direction, we need that feedback to learn. And again, that's coming from um, a lot of research um, athletes mm-hmm. use that. And you see, you see really interesting things like how people keep breaking records. You see, um, you see people like LeBron James, he's 38 years old and he's still performing in better an than amazing way. Yeah, top 10 in the NBA. Yeah. <laughs> right. And, and how is that happening? It, it happens because there is a method to getting better. And this is deliberate practice. It's a, a proven method to getting better. And we can all follow these steps to get better. So we can do better in the our work with our clients. I love that. And that's really, to me, the main takeaway from the book is that this is a process for clients and therapists that what we're doing together is the work of EMDR and that we as therapists need to be connected to one another talking in this way because the influence that we have with a client when we do EMDR from this posture can be magical or whatever, you know, just like sensational um, in, yeah. in producing transformative trait level change. Uh, so I think that's, that's really, that's really good. Um, anything else on on the writing of the book, I'd love to kind of give listeners a, I'll put the link to the pre-order on Amazon inside the show notes. Um, and as well, a link to your, to the EMDR learning community, but is there anything else that you want to leave the listeners with? Well, I want to say that Bridger, if I wrote a book, anyone can write a book. Um, I want to encourage EMDR therapist or therapists, whoever listens to that. I know that most adults have somewhere here in their brain, a book. And I think therapists more than your general, Mm. you know, general population. So I think anyone can write a book. Um, I really, really learned a lot from Malcolm Gladwell. He has a course on masterclass.com. Yeah, I love masterclass. Um, yeah, and I I watched it twice, and I I kept watching it, and it 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 gave me so much, so much information, and so many ideas. So you know, for example, he talks about start with the end in mind. Well, how do you want to finish the book? So once you have that, everything else becomes easy because you leave falls to in that. place, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, in my proposal, for example, um, I wrote like one of the chapters that I submitted to publishers uh, was chapter eight, the last chapter. It wasn't chapter eight that I think, you know, it, I changed the Gets structure a little bit, yeah. but that was, that was the, the bottom line. That's where I wanted to lead the reader to. Uh, and again, just to kind of close a circle here, um, I talk about the brain in the very, very last, you know, paragraph of the book, I'm talking about changing the therapist's brain, right? We started with the brain to change the client's brain because, you know, this is what we do. This is the, you know, that's how healing happens when we're changing neural networks and kind of help integrating neural networks. Uh, But the deliberate practice uh, it has been shown to change to increase myelin, which is you know this fat fatty sheet that you know 
goes helps connectivity in the brain. <laughs> right, right. So faster connectivity means that you're performing better. Um, so that's kind of like again, just to 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 close that loop of yeah. this is Deliberate how we practice. started. We started in the brain, changing your clients' brains, and we're ending with the brain changing your brain, your meaning the EMDR therapist, the reader. Yeah, I love that. Um, yeah, thank you so much, Rotem, for your your willingness to come on the podcast. You're such a giving person with your time, and we really appreciate having you. Thanks for having me. It's always good to spend time with you, Bridger. We hope that you have enjoyed this podcast episode and that it will help you help your clients in the process of EMDR therapy. If you are curious to learn more about something that you've heard today, check out our website at www.beyondhealingcenter.com and go to the trainings tab for more information on our upcoming EMDR and case conceptualization trainings. You can also contact us by emailing trainings at beyondhealingcenter.com. If you want to stay connected, please subscribe to this podcast for more episodes, leave us a review, and follow us on social media by searching Notice That Podcast.